So 1 Peter chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 13 through 17. We'll look at them once this morning, and then we'll look at them again in a different light the next time I preach. This is God's word. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This is the word of the Lord. Got a little excited there and went a couple extra verses, so we won't be touching on all of that. So do you remember when you were a kid, or maybe you still are a kid, and you were horsing around inside, and uh, probably, you know, it was probably your brother's fault, but anyway, you were horsing around and you broke something in your, in your home. And maybe it was like a picture off of a wall or a vase or something. And you had that sinking feeling because you knew that mom and dad were going to find out and they'd be mad. And you started to think about what the consequences might be. You know, would they give you a spanking? Would you get a timeout? Would they take away TV time for the week? Or if you were maybe a more imaginative child, you know, like the ones that are on all the TV shows, you might think, maybe I'll be disowned, maybe they'll kick me out, I'll be out on the street, and you see this little image of a five-year-old with his knapsack and his harmonica, we'll work for food, we'll work for gummy bears. Which is really quite silly to think. Because you didn't earn your way into the family with good behavior. So you couldn't mess up your way out of the family by breaking grandma's vase. This first word that Peter uses in these verses is therefore. And it's the hinge that holds verses 1 through 12, what we have been going through when I'm preaching, and the rest of this letter, basically four and a half chapters. So Peter began this letter by blessing God, who worked so great a salvation for those who wait for him. Out of his own good pleasure, God has chosen to love those who, because of our sins, are not lovely. But God now has made us lovely in his Son, Jesus Christ. Then, Peter addressed the trials that Christians face as a result of of our faith. God has a purpose in every trial he gives to his children. 
he is doing his work of purifying ourselves and our faith so that we would no longer rely on our own works or status or skills, but instead depend wholeheartedly upon him. And finally, we saw that Peter helped his readers understand the majesty of God's plan and stand firm even in the depth of suffering. And he did this by causing, causing them, causing us to consider the way Jesus suffered and the glory that he received. And Peter now in this text is going to start to give us commands. But the therefore indicates that he is not basing this upon something that we have to do to earn something from God. He is telling us something that we, we are doing because of what God has done. So God gives us commands. And we are to keep those commands as Christians. It's not legalism. It's not earning our salvation. It's the obligation that we have because of who God has made us by what he has done. Take your Bibles and leave a bookmark or a finger in 1 Peter and go all the way back to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus is the second book of the Bible and it deals mostly with how God through Moses, delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And in Exodus 20, when God is giving the Ten Commandments, he begins with this preface, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And it is only after that preface that God then says, You shall have no other gods before me. And this is God's own voice spoken from the mountaintop of Sinai where he gave the Ten Commandments to Israel. And before he gives a command, he proclaims who he is to them, who they are to him, and what he has done for them. I am the Lord. That's the covenant name, Yahweh, or sometimes translated Jehovah. And that's what God gave to Moses to tell the people who it was that was delivering them. I am the Lord, your God. And think of how personal this is. He says, I am your God. I am not the God of Egypt or of the Canaanites whose land I will be giving you. I am your God. And of course, this equally means that they are his people. I've been to several weddings for my college friends. If anybody has been to a Bible college or gone, you, you kind of know that there's a thing called ring by spring, um, and certainly it might not be that quick, but before you're graduated, you're probably engaged. And uh, so I've seen, I've seen this happen fairly often. I've seen something happen to the groom uh, just about every single time. Um, it probably happens to the bride, too, but the groom is the one I've seen where this, this happens. And it's usually during the reception or right maybe directly after the ceremony while the pictures are being taken. And 
It's in a moment where all the emotional and physical strain of the last, you know, however long it took to plan the wedding, finally pays off. You know, he's sitting there or standing there, the groom, without a single thought in his blessed head, finally able to take a moment away from worrying if everything will turn out as planned. And his bride, with a little more self-awareness than he has, looks at him in his half-dazed state and asks, How are you doing, husband? And now comes the moment of realization where he, he, he understands, I'm married. And sure, he's married at the ceremony, at that moment. But none of, none of that, he doesn't have any time to even think about that. It doesn't register until now. And he blinks, and his glazed-over eyes now shine with this recognition. And he replies, you know, usually something simple like, I'm doing great, honey, or couldn't be better. And then he turns to everyone who happens to be around him, whoever they are, and says, guys, this is my wife. I have a wife. And that's the moment he knows he's married. And he's just going to let everyone know too, as if they hadn't just witnessed the entire ceremony. Because her relationship to him has changed, and it's the most wonderful change he could imagine. And actually, it's even beyond what he can think about in this moment, because an entire reality that was outside of his grasp, outside of the grasp of anything except his imagination, is now totally his own to experience freely and legitimately. She is not a wife to him. She is my wife. The wording is personal. And it is said well in the Song of Songs, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. So when the Lord says, I am your God, we need to understand, like the dumbfounded newlywed, what this really means to us. He is not a God far off and disconnected. He's not like the pagan deities who offer help to their worshipers for for things like an offering of sacrifice. You know, Baal says, give me a sacrifice and I'll make your crops grow. You know, Zeus says, build me an altar and great statues and I'll make your armies win. McDonald's says, pay me $6.93 and I'll give you a Big Mac and fries. Your retirement fund says, pay me first and you won't have to worry about your later years. But the Lord says, I am your God, and you are my people. So what happened at Mount Sinai wasn't a transaction, but a covenant. And when God makes a covenant, he freely chooses his people and makes himself their God, regardless of anything they are or have done, and he fully gives himself. To them. And when Jesus saves us, it's not a business deal, it's a wedding. He has given himself to his people 
for his people freely and fully. And by the power of the Spirit, his people give themselves to him freely and fully. So God has said, I am the Lord. That's his personal name. Your God, his relationship to us, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's what he has done for us. God did not say to Israel while they were slaves in Egypt, here are my rules, try to keep them. And if you do well enough, I'll deliver you out of slavery in Egypt. No, we read in Exodus 2, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. The Ten Commandments come after the Ten Plagues and the death of the firstborn. The Passover and the crossing of the Red Sea weren't earned. God delivered his people freely. And it's only after this deliverance that the law was given to Israel. And then what about us and this new covenant? Well, it's only after Christ has raised you from the dead, your spiritual death, that he commands you to walk in newness of life. This is how God orders things. He first says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make a graven image to worship. You shall not take my name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not covet. The whole story of God's deliverance of the people of Israel creates the cultural backdrop for Peter. He has grown up reenacting the Passover meal each year. And Jesus told Peter and the rest of his disciples while they were celebrating the Passover meal. In John 14, 15, he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, Jesus had already come into the world. He had already chosen his disciples. A husband doesn't stay faithful to his wife in order to earn his marriage. He's already married to her, and that's why he's faithful to her. Because there's already a relationship and a covenant that obligates him to live in a certain way. There are rules to marriage. Namely, summed up in this, I am your husband exclusively, and you are my wife exclusively. And I will live like it's true because it is true. If Jesus has saved you, you keep his commandments. You are not earning your salvation. You are living as if your salvation is real because it is real. 
See, the antidote to legalism is not lawlessness. Legalism is trying to earn God's favor by keeping his commands. Lawlessness is living like you don't have to keep God's commands at all. But the problem of legalism can't be solved with lawlessness. If you strive to keep all the commands of God because you think that by doing so, you will earn your own place as his child, then you are trying to earn a righteousness from the law. And that is legalism. It's something many of the Pharisees and Jews attempted, and they were condemned time and again by Jesus and the apostles for it. But the answer to legalism is not to live like there is no law for you to obey whatsoever. I'm belaboring this point because confusion about the right and proper use of the commands of God has dogged the church throughout most of her history. And there is real freedom, joyful obedience, and everlasting fruit for you if you can understand it rightly. Say you know a man that you, you care deeply about, and while talking to him, he tells you that he's, you know, met this woman who really delights him. But that's kind of a problem because he's been married to a wonderfully faithful wife for 20 years, and he certainly seemed to be a faithful husband. But now he talks about this other woman. He's planned a wonderful evening with her, dinner by candlelight, and he's booked a honeymoon suite for afterward. And you're shocked. And you say to him, but you're married. What about your wife? And he says something like, well, I don't want to be legalistic about my marriage. I didn't earn my marriage. She was so gracious to agree to marry me, and I don't want her to think that I'm trying to earn her freely given grace. And if you're a good friend with a little bit of confidence and sense, what you'll do is you'll take your hand, open like this, and smack him right across the face and say, you idiot, you're married. You don't get to test your wife's graciousness just to prove that she is gracious. And I think you'd all agree that this hypothetical friend is totally misunderstanding what marriage is. But Christians talk this way about our relationship with God. Well, he's gracious, so I can do whatever. God is gracious, or I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. As if that means we don't have to do anything. As if Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, go and sin some more. All right, we've made it through one word, the therefore. But the therefore is the hinge word that holds the first part of this letter to what the rest we're going to get to. And as I've labored to show you, if we don't understand how this hinge works, we don't understand the very basics of the Christian life. So for the rest of the sermon, I'm going to just touch on the several commands that Peter begins to give in these next verses. And there are three points to be found among all these commands. They're about hope, 
holiness, and fear. And these three things become the application to what we've unpacked so far. So he says, first, fully set your hope on Jesus' return. Now, New Testament hope is not wishful thinking, like saying, I hope it doesn't rain on my wedding day. It's actually a complete certainty of the outcome of something in the future. And it's so different from what we normally think about in our wish-fulfillment worldly culture that I don't really have a metaphor. And Christians, we've been conformed to the world in many ways too. But hope in the Bible is the certainty of future promises because of things you know right now. And here's the thought. If your hope is fully set on Jesus' return, it can't also be set somewhere else. Is your hope divided? Is it Jesus and your 401k? Or Jesus and your family? Or Jesus and, but after next week, things will really slow down. And you may ask, how can I know if my hope is fully set? Or you may say, no, I know my hope is divided, but what can I do about it? Well, Peter gives us two helps right here. The diagnosis and the treatment are the same. He says, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Is your mind prepared for action? Do you see every moment as a possible opportunity for the Lord to pray or praise or share his gospel with your neighbor? Or are you distracted by whatever appears directly before you? We'll dig more into this in a future sermon, but right now, let me tell you that the answer is to consider again who God is and what he has done for you. Secondly, be holy as God is holy. Now, Peter could be quoting from any number of places in the law where God commands his people, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And we don't have time to dive into the study of holiness that this subject deserves, but we will. So for now, let me just draw a few quick concepts for application. Do you see how this command is based on God's own character? He doesn't say, be holy so I can bless you for it, or because it will make your life better and easier, or so that you will be rewarded. No, God told his people through Moses and his church now through Peter. God revealed his character. God is holy. He is pure and righteous and just. There is nothing evil or corrupt about God at all. He is not like the world we live in that is just soaked throughout and bathing in sin. There's not a drop of sin, not even a hint of the stench of sin to God at all. And because he is our God, and we are his people, he commands us to be like him. 
says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Do you live as if you don't know God? Do you live as if you were still ignorant of him? Can someone look at your life and understand that you know something that they don't because you live differently? Or do you still follow the passions you had before you knew God when you were ignorant of the gospel? And finally, fear God your Father. Just conduct yourselves with fear. And you may have heard that having the fear of God really just means to respect him, honor him, or give him reverence. But in the language of the Bible, fear means fear. Now, there is an ungodly way to fear God. If you think that he's just up to no good, just waiting for the perfect moment to do some harm to you, and you're afraid of him because he's almighty and unpredictable, then you don't understand his character, and your fear is a sinful fear. He is who he says he is. He is holy and righteous and good. And if you are always looking worriedly over your shoulder for the next thunderbolt, Your fear of God is a faithless fear. You don't believe he is good, and so you're afraid of him. But Peter is not calling us to that. Peter is calling us to the fear of God that we are to have as Christians that springs out of our love for God. Because when we sin, as Christians, we must recognize that we've sinned against the God who is our Father. When you sin, you grieve the Holy Spirit. Think about that. You can grieve God. When you sin, you are like the guards who struck Jesus with their fists and plucked out his beard. Sin is no laughing matter to be taken lightly. Do you take sin lightly? Do you treat sin like it's no big deal because Jesus has taken care of it for you? Do you love Jesus? Look at the cross and see what sin did to the one you love. Do you see his hands and his feet nailed through? And would you then play with the very nails that pierced him? Sin pierced him. He was there because of sin. Would you fondle the whip that tore your Jesus' back to shreds? Can you look up at him and hear him struggle to breathe in agony because of your sin and think, no big deal. As I said, there's a lot here, and we will, next time, dig further into all these these three things. Let us pray.